This is Ron Stockton. I want to tell you about Vernon Jordan. He died this week. He is one of the last of the great civil rights generation, those leaders who were contemporaries of Martin Luther King. Jesse Jackson may be the only one remaining, although I may have missed one. Vernon Jordan was the head of the Urban League, one of the major civil rights groups. But he's far more than that. Um, he grew up in <clears throat> very difficult circumstances, very poor. Um, he tells his story about how he went to uh, college and, and got a law degree. He was famous for uh, trying to get things done. That was his approach. He would walk into the headquarters of a corporation and meet with the CEO and say, you know, I've been thinking about your corporation. You don't have very many African-Americans, do you? And the CEO would say, yeah, we've got a lot. And Vernon Jordan would say, yeah, well, they're the staff, though. They, they clean up after everyone goes home. You don't have any executives, do you? Any African-Americans on your board? Well, no, we don't. Well, a corporation such as yours, being a leading corporation, respected by everyone, should certainly be setting an example, don't you think? Well, at this point, he had the CEO in his hands. And so he was able to get... Uh, a very large number of people hired. I really admired that. He was uh, he was he was low on rhetoric. He didn't say a lot of words. He just tried to get things done. Um, he became a power broker. After he left the Urban League, he became a power broker. Now, what do I mean by that? He was amazing at finding talented young people and mentoring them. He found Hillary Clinton when she was a young uh, a graduate and mentored her. He found Bill Clinton and when he was just an attorney, didn't hold any office and he thought, okay, this guy has some future. There were people all over Washington who looked upon Vernon Jordan as the person who had helped them get their start. He was discreet. He never discussed a conversation. He was supportive because he knew everyone. If you needed an appointment or if you needed a recommendation, he knew who to go to. Uh, what an amazing person he was. Um, I encountered him when he wrote his memoir, which is called Vernon Can Read. The title of that comes from a time when he was a boy and he was working for some rich uh, white guy in uh, Alabama as, as a house servant, basically. But the man had a big library and Vernon would read books and borrow them. And once at a dinner, once at a dinner uh, table, with a lot of guests there, the person said, Vernon can read. I mean, what an amazing uh, thing to say. Um, he tells a couple of stories in the book that I think are very, uh, very interesting and reveal a lot. Uh, one 
He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. Dark is a big factor here. He is very dark-skinned. And there is a little bit of uh, uh, colorism, it's sometimes called, within the African-American community. There are people who don't like dark people and uh, prefer people who are light. And uh, he tells about date when he was in high school. There was this cute girl in his class, and he asked her to go to the prom with him. And she said, no, I'm not going to go to the prom with someone as dark as you are. Uh, I think this must have stung a little bit at the time. Jordan is really good at not burning bridges. He said that, he said in his memoir that uh, she later apologized for that and we're good friends now. Well, I'm sure she did apologize once he was famous, but the fact is he didn't hold a grudge. He said, okay, you said that. It wasn't a good thing to say, but you said it. And he, he went on. Um, he had a reputation for uh, drawing women. They loved the guy, and apparently he loved them back. Um, there was a woman at the book reading. He came to Dearborn uh, to Borders of Blessed Memory. He came to uh, uh, Dearborn uh, to, to do a book reading and read some stories there. There was a, a woman in the audience. It wasn't large. I bet if there were 20 people there, I would be surprised. But uh, there was a woman there. She was gaga over this guy. I mean, she was, it embarrassed me. She said, oh, Mr. Jordan, you are so good looking. I mean, it was like she was throwing herself at him. Um, and he was very gracious. He said, well, thank you, ma'am, and uh, went on. But um, uh, that was that was his uh, that was one of his uh, qualities that he and women uh, really hit it off. Um, the the a couple of stories a story I really remember is a story he relates in the book, but I think he sh summarized it for us in the audience as well. It was why he came to write this book, and uh, after his wife died, he had a young daughter. And he said, I really, I was so busy. I really needed someone to kind of be there on a day-to-day -day basis to, to look after my daughter. So he said there was this woman, uh, an older woman, and they hired her and she came in and lived with them. And, and she had grown up in the old South. And one day the three of them were sitting there and she started talking about what it was like and how black people had to sit in the back of the bus. And his daughter was sitting there. She was shocked. And she said, well, I would never have sat in the back of the bus. Very uh, confident. And the woman just looked at her and in a soft voice said, oh, yes, you would have. You don't understand what it was like. That was her point. You don't understand that if you didn't sit in the back, you could be beaten, you could be arrested. Who knows what could happen? And Vernon Jordan says in, in his memoir, I realized that, that my daughter was typical of a generation of young people who had benefited from the civil rights movement and didn't even know that they were beneficiaries. They just thought people who sat in the back of the bus, well, those people just weren't speaking up. They should speak up. That's what I would do. And he decided then to write his book and tell the story as he saw it, of what life was like and a bit of his, um, his own life. Um, 
I found that very interesting. Um, during the conversation, during the discussion, after he finished the reading, he asked if anybody had any questions or comments. And so I decided to ask a question. I said, Mr. Jordan, you and I are about the same age. He's actually, uh, I think, five or six years older than I am, but close enough. I said, you and I are about the same age. And if you go back to when we were boys and look at what this country has achieved in terms of race relations, it's stunning. So much has been done. But if you look at what we could have been if we had really done what we should do, it's very disappointing. And he said, I know exactly what you mean. I feel the same way. But he said, the way I look at it is that we basically are uh, judged on what we achieve. And he said, when I was a, uh, when I started off as the head of the Urban League, I decided to have a meeting with everyone who was African-American on Wall Street. So we set up a dinner. He said, you could have put us all into a phone booth. There were just a handful of them there. Every year since then, we've had an annual dinner. And now we have to book a very large hall to get everybody in because there are so many. That's progress. And that's what I consider worth, uh, worth noting. The fact that we have done so many good things. Um, I can kind of admire that in a man. That was Vernon Jordan. I can't change the world, but I can fix a little part of it and I can make a difference in someone's life. Uh, there was an attempt to assassinate him in 1980. He was shot in the back, as I recall. And uh, he had been delivering a speech at Fort Wayne in Indiana, and someone shot him as he was uh, walking to his motel. Um, the person was not convicted, but later was convicted. He was a serial killer, and later he was convicted of other uh, killings and was executed. Uh, it wasn't clear that Vernon Jordan would survive. Uh, Fort Wayne didn't have the best medical facilities for emergency care at the time. And so uh, it took a, it took a, it took a while for him to recover, um, but but he ultimately did. Uh, he knew everyone. Vernon Jordan knew everyone, and he and Bill Clinton were particularly good friends. Um, when Monica Gate occurred, is that the way we call that? I don't know. When Monica Gate occurred, he was uh, intimately involved in one way or the other. Uh, Monica came to him. Apparently, she had been told, go talk to Vernon Jordan. And he and, he and Bill were close friends and uh, would golf together and uh, tell dirty jokes together and whatever they would do. And she came to him and... Uh, you know, later, uh, later the Republicans tried to entangle him. They thought, okay, we can get this guy. It was so strange and fun. It was fun to watch how Vernon Jordan handled those self-righteous people who were prosecuting, impeaching Bill Clinton 
for cheating on his wife and trying to cover it up. I could tell you the founders were not thinking in terms of someone cheating on his wife when they wrote the impeachment clause into the Constitution. But uh, they kept asking him questions. So let me tell you, uh, let me tell you what, uh, let me read some, some issues from the transcript. I think you'll find this interesting. Uh, so what is the nature of your relationship with President Clinton over the last year? So here was his answer. First of all, let me say that the President of the United States, William Clinton, has been my friend for a very long time. We became friends in 1973 when I was President and Chief Executive Officer of the Urban League, and I was in Little Rock making a speech about race relations, equal opportunity, fairness, and justice. And this young lawyer, a professor at the University of Arkansas, showed up, and we've been friends since. Now, Bill Clinton was not at that time in politics, but I think uh, Vernon Jordan looked at this guy and thought, okay, this guy is somebody. He's going to end up somewhere. And uh, Bill Clinton, not being a fool, thought Vernon Jordan is a, uh, an impressive person. And so uh, we are personal friends. We are fellow lawyers. We are fellow Southerners. We care about race. We care deeply about the South, where we are both from. And I think we have a historic mutuality of interest in public policy issues, politics. We play golf. The president, every year since he has been president, has come to our home for Christmas Eve dinner. The first dinner given for him after he was elected president, but before he took office. We hosted that. So we're friends. Look at that. No equivocation. Yeah, we're friends. We're good friends. We're really good friends. He comes to my house for Christmas Eve. You have got another question? It's so interesting. These Republican managers were so dishonest about what they were doing. These impeachment managers, what they were doing and why. They didn't know how to deal with a man who was totally transparent. What he did, he never equivocated. He never said, no, I didn't do that. No, no. Never tried to make excuses. So, Monica came to him. They had a sit down. And so he was asked about that meeting. What happened? Uh, he said she was very emotional. She had received a subpoena to uh, testify in the Paula Jones lawsuit. And what Monica had to do with Paula Jones, I don't know. But anyway, uh, that, was, uh, that was an effort to link all sorts of things together. Um, and so he asked her, well, he said she was very emotional and distraught and acted like a, a teeny bopper infatuated with someone. She said she had not had a sexual relationship with the president. And I took her at her words on that and suggested to her that she needed a lawyer, told her that she should tell the truth. And I told her I would help her get a lawyer. So they ask again, tell me about your friendship with the president. Uh, no, sorry. He asked Monica, tell me about your friendship with the president. And she said, the president is a friend of mine, and I really have great admiration for the president. And I thought quite honestly that I was listening to a Bobby Soxer, that's a term from the 1940s, who was mesmerized by Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, okay, we're back in the 40s and 50s, who was quite taken with this man because of his position, because of who he was because he was tall and he was handsome, and because he was president. That was clear to me. And she expressed an admiration, a fondness for the president. And it was clear to me that a new element had been discovered here by me, 
and I felt it incumbent upon myself to satisfy myself as to what had taken place, and I asked her a question, and she said no. So the, the interrogator says, as the best you can recall, what exactly would have been that question you would have asked? I asked her, have you had sexual relations with the president? And when you said sexual relations, and without your needing to be graphic, what do you mean when you say that? Were there any limitations on what you viewed as sexual relations to her? Uh, my view of it was sexual intercourse, period. That's my definition of sexual relations, sexual intercourse. And that's the context in which I asked the question. Okay, I've got to tell you that they were these, these impeachment managers were looking for uh, something. And uh, Bill Clinton said, I never had sexual relations with that woman. And, uh, you know, when I grew up, when Bill grew up, when <laughs> Vernon grew up, Sexual relations is that thing that makes babies, right? Other th everything else is, is what Monica called it, fooling around. She says, we didn't have sexual relations. We were fooling around. Okay. During the course of this conversation, Ms. Lewinsky asked me if I thought the president would leave the first lady at the end of his term. And that, as I remember, was both very frightening and, from my point of view, unrealistic about the president. So I just said, that's a really crazy notion on your part. That will never happen. And I was confident that they would be together till death do them part. And I do believe that, as a matter of fact. And I said that to her. And that was, it was a statement that certainly set off alarm bells on my mind as to this kind of fixation, this kind of possessive Bobby Soxer attitude that I felt she had towards the president. By the way, people who are rock stars, they get they get fixations. These uh, these uh, fans kind of, kind of pursue them, and sometimes it's just uh, they write them they write them fifty letters, and sometimes they get crazy and decide that you don't love me, I'm going to kill you. It's really strange, uh, uh, really strange relations. Um, so he went. He after this, he called the president. And the president said, come on over, Vernon. He had a, there was, a, whenever Vernon Jordan would call the White House, he got put straight through. The, he didn't have to be put on hold and wait. If the president was not in an emergency meeting, he would be put through. So he got put through. And, uh, and so they set up a meeting. And the president, Bill Clinton, said, come on over, Vernon. Let's talk about whatever it is. So I told him that Monica Lewinsky had been subpoenaed and came to me with a subpoena. I told him that I was concerned by her fascination, her being taken with him. I told him how emotional she was having gotten that subpoena. I told him what she said to me about whether or not he was going to leave the first lady at the end of the term. And at the end of that, I asked him if he had had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. Okay, I explained all of this to him. And he listened, I think, with some dazzlement and amazement at this. And I put this question to him. And he said, what was the question you asked? Mr. President, have you had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky? The president said, no, never. Well, that's true. They caught him in other equivocations. Bill Clinton equivocated. He lied at one point and said, he was asked if he had ever been alone in the Oval Office with Monica, and he said no. 
And uh, he later said, well, I wasn't alone because there was a secretary out front, but that's, uh, he was weaseling. And so they caught him in perjury. And that was one of the issues on which he was uh, prosecuted. Um, the managers asked him, uh, um, they wanted to get Monica out of the White House. She was a student intern. Uh, by the way, those of you who are UMD student interns, this is not anything close to that. Uh, they, she was not supervised. She just had a, uh, she got put in the White House as a favor to her father. Her father was a big fundraiser for Clinton. So he called up and said, could you get my daughter in the White House? And Bill said, yeah, no problem. Be glad to have her. Yeah. Anyway, um, they wanted to get rid of her and uh, move her somewhere else where she would be away from the president. So he called the head of Revlon, the Vernon Jordan called the head of Revlon. His name is Ron Perlman. And Revlon is a big corporation. And uh, so they said to him, why did you call Ron Perlman? And uh, Vernon Jordan was so so transparent. He said, well, because you don't get any bigger and more powerful or richer than Ron Perlman. Like, why should I go to some minor person? I'm going to go to the top. If I want a favor and I want to get her out of there, I'm going to go to someone who can make a difference. And that's Ron Perlman. So as I said, those uh, managers were so dishonest that they just didn't know how to deal with uh, someone who was proud of the fact that he was a fixer. He knew everybody. Any of my friends have a problem? A friend of one of my friends has a problem? I'll try to help. I can find you a good lawyer. I can find you a job. I can find you an appointment. I can get you an appointment. I really liked Vernon Jordan. He was an amazing person. And I love the answer that he gave to my question. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.